Um, just as way of starting, my goal is to be here as often as possible. Barring some major circumstances, I will do my best to be here every Sunday. With that said, and I'm thankful that you guys are here, neither do I want people to put themselves at risk. Um, so if you can make it great, I would encourage you to. But at the same time, um, if you feel the need to stay and be safe, please do so. I am okay with that. Um, I'm grateful that at this point we have the recordings now, and those are going on the website every day or every week. Um, and so if you miss, there's at least that opportunity. If there's um, only one person in the pew, will you still preach? Probably. <laughs> I have before. <laughs> so um, that's the advantage of having it here. And often I end up preaching to myself anyway. <laughs> so, um, so I'm grateful that you guys are here. Um, there seems to be no time of the year that creates, I guess, an ambiance of Thanksgiving and kindness more than this time of year. Whether it be believer, unbeliever, all seem more predisposed to an attitude of thanksgiving during this season. Uh, for Christians, though, our demeanor of thanksgiving and kindness is different because it's not initiated by what we've received, but by what God has given. And yes, I do think there's a difference. Ours is a remembrance of and a response to the irreplaceable, incomparable gift of his Son, as most of us gathered yesterday with friends and family to celebrate the birth of his son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, it seems fitting to bring us back to the text that we began last week. And I want to again turn your gaze away from the here and now and instead remember the past of then and there. And so as always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And I want to continue the message that I started last week before the cross of Christ, the birth of Christ. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. I suspect that Satan must find tremendous delight in the yearly celebration of Christmas. His joy at Christmas must surpass the joy of those who celebrate it. I know that sounds like an odd statement, 
But how pleasing it must be for him to see that the holiday dedicated to Christ's birth is absent of Christ's birth. How pleasing it must be for him to see Christmas absent of Christ. While the children shout with glee at the opening of gifts for Christmas, Satan joins with his own shout of glee at the absence of the gift of Christ. It must fill him with gladness to watch people fill their stockings with stuff, rather than to fill their souls with his spirit. And how it must bring him such gratification to see the world share stories of a mythical figure, St. Nick or Santa Claus, as though he were real. And yet at the same time, they share stories of a real figure, Jesus Christ, as though he were a mythical one. Certainly, Satan would find greater pleasure in a cultural, Christless Christmas than most that the most people celebrate today than he would of a Christ-derived, Christ-filled day that celebrates the birth of the very one who would conquer him. For Satan, Christ, Christmas must become a celebration, a triumph, a day of victory in which he may rejoice that instead of giving the gifts of gold fit for a king, the people now give gifts of greed fit for me. He may rejoice that instead of celebrating the Savior in the manger, his people rejoice or celebrate at self in their wealth. How Satan must delight in this, because it is celebrated in a way that is not out of sincere ignorance anymore, but out of deliberate indifference. Although it is cloaked in piety, Christmas is a day of heresy, at least according to the world standards. While the man's word proclaims the story of Christmas, God's word proclaims the Savior of Christmas. The story told by the Gospels is much different than the story told by people, calling our attention to the greatness of God, pointing to his plan from the beginning of creation and his provision for restoring that fallen creation. By his grace, God was never content to leave people there, to leave people in their sin, Christmas celebrates the birth of Christ because it anticipates the cross of Christ. It looks forward to that moment of restoration, that moment of reconciliation between the created one and their creator, between the sinless one and the holy one. This morning, I once again want to place your focus on the Gospel of Matthew, asking that you pray with me that as we look at this, that our examination of the text would reveal the birth of Christ so that we may be prepared for the cross of Christ. And just as way of quick review, I want you to remember first the plan of God. The plan of God found in verses 18 through 21a. There we see that all of history is all of his story. All that has come to pass and all that will come to pass is based on the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said last week, creation is defined by the moment when Christ spoke and after the moment Christ spoke. Time is defined based on whether or not an event took place before his birth or after his birth. And even our own lives are defined by who we were before Christ and who we are after Christ. The history of humanity is the history of divinity, 
reminding us that all the stories that make up the records of mankind are the stories of God's work for mankind. Serving as evidence of this are the words in Matthew, showing that the plan of God was ordered. It is at this point in this text in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. Without understanding that this is a plan of the Lord, Joseph is faced with this major dilemma. And if carried out, his plan would overturn God's plan. As a righteous man, he cannot go through with this marriage. Because to do so would give approval to what appears to be Mary's infidelity. But being a just man, neither did he want to shame her. And then God intervenes. He intervenes by bringing an angel to explain the situation to Joseph. To explain, indeed, that Mary is pregnant. But it's not infidelity as he expects. Instead, this is a creative work of the Holy Spirit. And it is done so that the purpose of God may be fulfilled. And so Joseph obeys and proceeds with the marriage, showing us that the objectives of God cannot be overcome by the objectives of man. I want you to remember second from last week, the provision of God in the last half of verse 21. There Matthew writes, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The plan of God includes the provision of God. It is the provision of a Savior, as evidenced by his name, Jesus. He is the one who will save the world from their sins. We read about the birth of Christ with great joy, because it causes us to jump forward in history, to see his impending death on the cross and his coming resurrection by which our sins will be atoned for. I want you to remind you of how we ended last week, thinking about the formation of Christ. As we think about people formed in the womb, we think of Christ, that his head was formed in the womb so that he may bear upon it those painful thorns of the crown placed on his head. The formation of his hands and wrists took place so that in them they might bear those nails that would hold him to the cross. And the formation of his feet took place so that they might bear that one nail that would perforate his body there, that he might be placed before a mocking crowd. And then, of course, the formation of his side took place, that it would eventually be pierced by that spear, confirming his death. Jesus Christ was born to die. He is indeed the provision of God. And now as we move forward, I want you to note third, the preservation of God. Matthew uses verse 22 to say, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Never is God deceived. Never is he dealt a surprise. And never does he have to contend with defectors. But all that God purposes is all that God will accomplish. Therefore, the work of God will always persevere and preserve his purposes, preserve his people, and preserve his prominence. In the following verse, verse 23, Matthew will cite Isaiah 7.14. We read it this morning, and I ask you to remember those words. When he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. For our scripture reading this morning, we read from the book of Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And they bring us the background of this verse. And I'm going to ask you guys to turn there as we spend some time just in that passage. Isaiah chapter 7. The story begins at verse 1. And it states, In those days, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz is identified as the son of Uzziah, but we would do better to identify him as evil and an abhorrent king. And his evil gets progressively worse. First, he is known for actively participating in idol worship. He is the king that reinstituted the worship of Moloch. And so wicked is Ahaz that he doesn't even think twice about sacrificing his own son to Moloch. And to demonstrate the spirit of complete depravity, he would openly mock and reject God. It's not out of line for a righteous person to desire the deposition and annihilation of Ahaz. And entering into Isaiah 7, that appears to be what is taking place. We're given the names of two kings, Rezin, who is the king of Aram, or Syria, and Pekah, who is the king of the northern tribe of Israel. And they are advancing on towards Ahaz with the hopes that not only will they invade the land, but with the desire to conquer the land and conquer the people and make it their own. And coming to the land of Ahaz is this threat of war and so serious so legitimate is this threat look at how the people respond in verse 2 it says that both Ahaz and his people shook with fear impending doom is coming on these people and the only way they are expected to prevail is by the offer of having an ally on their side that will defend them and look what God does In verse 4, he uses the prophet Isaiah to say to Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands. We could translate this that while they're quaking in fear, God is saying, do not fear. But God doesn't stop there. He continues on in verse 7 to say, It shall not stand, it shall not come. To pass. No doubt these circumstances are alarming for the people of Judah at this time. They have this uncertain future, and yet here is God before them, not only promising them a future, but already God has proven a history of delivering them into the future. Already he's preserved the line by bringing them through the exodus and out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land that they inherited. And eventually he would give them a king just as they desired. At various times his presence was with them, dwelling in places like the tabernacle. This is a God who is reliable. 
and participated in their history already, showing himself faithful. But like the story of Joseph, this one reveals that despite what man, men have planned, God prevails. And this story they cited from Isaiah shows how God preserves, again, his prominence, his people, and his purpose. Notice first how God preserves his own prominence. These circumstances reveal the glory of God. With God's offer of physical salvation here, Ahaz does something quite spectacular, something that defies the logic of any of us reading the text. He rejects it. In case there is any doubt by Ahaz of God's willingness to go forward on this promise, God offers to give a sign, telling Ahaz in verses 10 and 11, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or as high as heaven. He puts almost no limits on this. Essentially telling Ahaz, ask whatever sign you want, and I will show it to you in order to give you assurance. But so entrenched and so blinded by his ways, Ahaz says no. He even does it in a way that makes him sound pious or holy by suggesting that he would not put the Lord to the test in verse 12. And yet the following words show us that God is not deceived by this false piety. Indeed, it would be wise, according to James, to not test God. But Ahaz makes it clear that he never had any regard for God from the beginning, that he would rather seek his own ways. So instead of relying on the Lord's deliverance, he seeks his own way, and he begins forging an alliance with Assyria. This works for a time, as indeed they are delivered from those that are coming to conquer them. But Isaiah chapter 8 reveals that it's only a short while later when Judah is overcome by Assyria and the king of Tiglath-Pilisar. The amazing thing is that despite Ahaz's rejection, God still shows his greatness. God still gives them a sign, saying, verses 14 and 16, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he, know, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse, refuse the evil and choose the good, the land who two kings you dread will be deserted. This can be confusing, but to assure them of his attentions, God says that he's going to give them a sign which will bear testimony to God's presence with the people. The sign will be in the form of a child who will be born, and before he knows the difference between right and wrong, those two kings, Pekah and Rezin, and their entire kingdoms will have fallen. And just as it was said, a child was born to Isaiah's wife. And before that child was three years old, both kings had died. While the sign proved to be true, Ahaz went his own way. He had already forged an alliance with the Assyrians. And that, too, would eventually deteriorate. In the same way that Ahaz rejected God's sign, we see that God fulfills yet another prophecy by sending another sign. Though this one is more prominent and in the form of a revelation of God himself. 
It is God in human form, Jesus Christ, as we read in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is an ongoing sign of God's presence to the world. But that, too, would be rejected to the point of placing Christ on the cross. Despite his resurrection, people today still haven't removed Christ from the cross. They continue to place him there as a mere man, a mere teacher who had some good things to say. If that were the case, if things that he said were so true and so wonderful, why was he crucified? If they were so incredible and so applicable, why do we not follow those words today? But Jesus isn't merely a good man or a good teacher. Jesus is a fulfillment of God's prophecy, preserving God's prominence by revealing his holiness and his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Notice also that God preserves his people. Once again in Isaiah verses 15 and 16, chapter 7, God assures the people that these two kings would indeed die and there would be no need to fear them. Despite their disobedience, God continues to follow through on the promise of giving them a sign. We just saw that. But he also follows through by ensuring that those two kings indeed are dead. It points to the Lord's unwillingness to forsake his people. It is true that eventually those people would be conquered. They'd be taken over by the Assyrians, but even in that moment, God is still with them. In the next chapter, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, God speaks of bringing up the Assyrians, describing them like a river that would go over the banks and flood Judah. And he says, And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it, the river, the Assyrians, will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the next. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. Oh, God with us. Despite all of this treachery, God is still with them. Although this time it is to bring judgment, God never left his people. God is this unique combination of omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, meaning he is all-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. As God's presence fills the earth, there is no place which he is not there. While he is here with us, he is over there with them. So no doubt he was present at the worship that was not meant for him, but meant for the idols that Ahaz was worshiping. But not only is he all present or everywhere present, he is all knowing. He understood the hard attitude and rejection from Ahaz. Even when it was intended to sound religious, he knew Ahaz's heart when he said, I will not test God. And finally, he's omnipotent, all powerful. Not only did he proclaim the events in Isaiah chapter 7, but he made them happen. By his power, he sovereignly directs them and ensured that they would be fulfilled just as Jesus had said, just as he said, sorry. As an omnipresent, omniscient God, he had a clear view into the wickedness of these people. And I have no doubt that as he knew who they were, he knew exactly what they needed. And his goal was to bring them back, to point them back to himself. They needed judgment. And as the all-powerful God, he could make that happen.
God knew exactly what they needed and he had the power to do it. This is a God who is working all things out for his glory and the good of his people as we see in Romans chapter 8. What a wonderful assurance that is for us to see that God is at work in the history of giving people not what they wanted, but what they needed the most. How reassuring it is then for us to know that whatever circumstances we are in the middle of, it is God who is working it out because he knows what we need at that moment. He knows what we need more than what we think we need. Lastly, notice how God preserves his purposes. Going back to verse 14, when God has the prophet Isaiah say, Therefore the Lord himself would give you a sign. The you in that text is plural, as in you all. Isaiah is speaking directly to Ahaz, and there's no need to use that plural you. He should just use the single you, meaning you alone. But he uses the plural And what he's doing here is including then the entire nation of Israel, the divided kingdom. And what he's telling them is that this virgin will bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel. This is his assurance that he will ensure the line of David continues, that it will not be destroyed. There will still be an heir to the throne. And look what happens. Chapter 8, they are captured by the Assyrians. They're taken captive, they're forced into exile, and yet the genealogical line is never broken, as we saw two weeks ago in looking at Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. God protects this lineage so that we can arrive all the way back to our text in Matthew and see the Messiah has come. This is the one who will save the people from their sins. God is at work. God's work is a work of preservation, keeping that which he's already ordained to take place. His prominence will be conserved, his people will be crowned, and his purposes will be concluded. I want you to note finally the presence of God in verses 23 through 25. The presence of God. Matthew chapter 1. Verses 23 through 25 conclude with this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The birth of Christ brings out the presence of God. Three times in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ recognizes the presence of God, recognizes Emmanuel as God with us. Here, of course, at the birth of Christ, which is a showcase of God's presence with us. The moment in which God is revealed in human form. The next showing of this is in Matthew chapter 18, in the midst of church discipline. And it is there that Christ says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then the last time is Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Matthew. Verses 19 through 20, what we know is a great commission. 
And when Christ commissions his disciples and tells them to go out and make disciples of all nations, he then says, and know that I am with you always. This is God with us. At this point, the birth of Christ, God physically enters human history. And now he must be reckoned with. No longer is he an obscure being, but God has made himself visibly manifest to us. Now humanity must respond to him. There is no other option. We can't pretend that he did not exist. Just the other day I was reading an article. The author confessed his difficulty in understanding this incarnation of Christ, this fully God and fully man, and why God would indeed come back in this form. And then he shared this story from the National Geographic from June 2003. And he says that the incarnation is reminds him of this story of a man by the name of Dinesh Parmar. Parmar is one of 10,000 bangis in Ahmedabad in India. And Parmar earns money by manually cleaning toilets and the sewers and the gutters by removing dead animals from the street. He is a bungi, as I just said, a member of what they would call the untouchable class, caste. If you don't know anything about India, there are five castes, or five levels of groupings of people, a hierarchy in society. This ranks the Hindu society um, from the legend that they believe, the legend which the main groups are what they call varnas, emerged from a primordial being. They say from the mouth came the Brahmins, that is the priest and the teachers. They say from the arms came then, I'm not going to say this right, but the Kasatriyas, which are the rulers and the soldiers. And then from his thighs came the Vaishyas, the merchants and the traders. And then from his feet came the Sudras, which are the laborers. Each varna, each group, in turn, then contains hundreds of these caste levels. But then there's a fifth group. And they describe the people as achuta. The primordial being that they believe in does not claim these people. And then the lowest caste of this group is the untouchables. They do all the dirty work I just described, all the work that nobody else wants to do. They deal with dead bodies and much of the manual labor that takes place. Within each caste, then, are these sub-caste. And so within the untouchable caste is the lowest sub-caste called Bangi. So in looking at a day's work for Parmar, he removes a manhole cover as an example. And in doing so, you'll see cockroaches scurry from that manhole cover. And yet, he doesn't hesitate for an instance to jump in, to drop in that hole. No gloves, no gas mask. And with his body inside, he methodically lifts bucket after bucket of excrement. He does so over his head. And then the next job is nearby. And he climbs out and into more manholes and does the same thing, cleaning out 
even more sludge. I suspect we would recoil at this picture. But this is a picture of Christ coming down to be the lowest of all servants. Would we love this man that we just talked about to leave our country, to leave our wealth and our rights as a U.S. citizen even, to enter his world, to become a bongi, to earn money in this way, to humble ourselves and humiliate ourselves, to save a few? And then the majority of those people probably aren't even going to appreciate the sacrifice. They're going to reject and kill you if you did that. That is what Christ did. This is the significance of what is taking place at Christ's coming. It is nothing less than God taking on the lowest form of servanthood for the salvation and sanctification of people. It is beyond our understanding. It is beyond our ability. But it's not beyond our need. If we neglect that God is with us, we've neglected the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is God with us. How that should transform who we are. We've been talking about the attributes of God on Wednesday night, and the last study we had was on the omnipresence of God, God with us. It was Anselm who said, How distant you are from my sight, while I am so present in your sight. There is no place we can hide from him, as David says in the Psalms. There is nothing we can do to escape from him. What does that mean for our worship on Sunday mornings? What a serious tone our worship would take if God was sitting here physically and we could actually see him. But the reality is God is here because God is everywhere. What does that mean about how we act with our spouses and our children? and friends, and family. How would we behave differently if we recognized that God was there with us in the moment as he is? And in those trials and tribulations, we would have no fear, and should have no fear, because God is with us. Spurgeon captures the magnitude of this in sharing this perspective. Emmanuel, God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly. And do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back Satan falls, confounded and confused. God with us is a laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go to foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is eternity sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah. The shout of the glorified, the song of the redeemed, the chorus of the angels, the everlasting oratio of the great orchestra in the sky. Last week, I called upon us to look at the birth of Christ in Matthew, not for the sake of tradition, but for the sake of conviction. When we come to Christmas, let us not be so consumed by the grind of this world that we forget to meditate upon the greatness of the God of this world. 
Her faith is not driven by tradition, but by conviction. It is a conviction that the appearance of Christ is part of the plan of God, the provision of God, the preservation of God, and the presence of God. We celebrate the birth of Christ because it brings about the death of Christ, and his death means our life. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you grateful that you brought us here this morning, grateful that we can gather, Lord. Father, fixate our gaze on you. Fixate our gaze on your Son, Lord. May we see him as you intended him to be, a full revelation of yourself in human form. May we look upon him and remember him and remember that your presence is with us, Lord. Father, may that may that convict us when we need conviction and may that comfort us when we need to be comforted. May we respond to your presence. May we respond to the birth of your son, sacrificing our lives for the sacrifice of the Savior. Father, we are grateful for who you are. May you remind us of these truths as we go from here this morning. To your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.